Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern, and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Howard Bloom, author of Night of the Assassins, the untold story of Hitler's plot to kill FDR, Churchill, and Stalin, published by HarperCollins, June 2nd, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. My pleasure. So first, how did you get into studying and writing on this subject? I came across a press conference that FDR gave in the Oval Office when he returned from the Tehran Conference. I was in the, uh, the FDR Presidential Library researching something else, actually. And I was going through his press conferences, and they're all recorded, and one can hear them. And in this press conference, he's talking about what happened at Tehran in November 1943. The meeting had been top secret, and he's now telling the American press for the first time what went on. And about 20 minutes into this long press conference, he says, by the way, we had a security problem. Uh, in the middle of the conference, I had to move from the American embassy to the Russian embassy for security concerns. There were a group of Nazi commandos on the loose in Tehran. And then he gives a hearty laugh and says, quote, it would have been a pretty good haul if they had gotten all three of us, <laughs> meaning himself, Churchill, and Stalin. And the press joins in laughing. And then what's most amazing to me the conversation just moves on. They start talking about China, the China question. There are no follow-up questions from the complacent wartime press. So I began to see, what is this all about? And I, there were a couple of books written after the war that had interviews with some participants in this, but mostly with pseudonyms. And then I found references in memoirs by Churchill, by Churchill's bodyguard, by FDR's bodyguard, Mike Riley. And then finally, I came across in 2003, the SVR, that's the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, what the KGB was called after the KGB went out of style. They released a treasure trove of previously classified documents about what really happened at Tehran. And I took these documents, had them translated, and then went to British archives, American archives, and German archives, and I was able to put the pieces together in this gigantic puzzle and relate with some accuracy and drama and hopefully some suspense what really occurred during those six days in Tehran in 1943. Mm -hmm. So how do you, uh, I, I assume the book is chronological, um, how, how do you divide up um, how you talk about the subject and uh, and what what do you focus on? I, I don't know how much information you had to draw on, but um... there was a, a great deal of information to draw on, and what it really is, the whole book becomes really a cat and mouse game between the two sides. On one side, there's Mike Riley; he's the head of FDR's Secret Service detail. Two days. After Pearl Harbor, Mike is given the job to be head of the detail. He's just 31 years old, uh, and he's sort of overwhelmed. He describes himself in a self-deprecating way as an Irish cop with more brawn than brains. And he now has to protect a wartime commander-in-chief. But there's never been a war like this before in U.S. history. For the first time, enemy planes can fly over the White House paratroopers can drop from the sky on the White House lawn, and there's something else. This president pr presents a unique difficulty in protecting him. He is paralyzed. He's literally a sitting target, and Mike realizes he has to put himself between the, the crosshairs of an assassin's bullet if it comes to that. And on the other side, the, the German uh, spy masters who are coming up with this plan this is really a desperation strategy for the Germans. By the winter of 1943, they realize the war is lost on the battlefield. They realize after uh, the German defeat at Stalingrad, after the successful 
Allied invasion of North Africa after America has gotten into the war and the bombers are coming off the assembly lines in the United States. They're just not going to win. But they have this, this idea of a pragmatic endgame strategy. They will hopefully get a stalemate out of the jaws of defeat. They'll keep on fighting, and the U.S. will have a negotiated peace. Mm-hmm. However, in January 1943, at the final day of the Casablanca Conference in North Africa, FDR makes a surprising announcement. I say surprising because it takes turtle by total uh, surprise. FDR says he's going. we are going to fight on until the unconditional surrender of the German, Italian, and Japanese forces. And with these two harsh words, unconditional surrender, the Nazis know that this war is not going to have a negotiated ending, that they will one day have to stand before an Allied war crime tribunal and answer for their crimes against humanity, against civilians, against the Jews. That also remember the last time in history the ultimatum of an unconditional surrender was given was Rome to Carthage, and Carthage was completely destroyed, and they believe that will be their fate too, mm-hmm. unless something can be done. So these two spy masters, uh, the head of the SS Section 6, General Walter Schellenberg, and uh, Admiral William Carnassus, uh, the head of the ABFR, begin to plot to see if there's a way to get an impossible mission to suddenly become possible, a way of targeting the big three. And Mike Bradley has to deal with this. And so it goes back and forth between these two sides. That's how the book is, is structured, largely. So at this time, Iran was uh, pretty much run by the British, I believe. Well, it was the British and the Russians. In 1941, both the British and the Russians invaded Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they sort of divided the country, and the Russians had largely control uh, of the north and, and parts of Tehran, and the British were elsewhere in the country, and the Americans were slowly coming in for a lend-lease presence, presence to send supplies over the railways to Russia. Mm-hmm. Why, why did they hold this meeting in Iran? Was it Did it seem pretty safe, and how were the Germans able to move around in there? Well, it's a very good question why they picked Tehran. It was sort of the last choice that the Allies came to. What happened was FDR very much wanted to have this meeting for the first time between the big three. He wanted it for two reasons. One, to plan D-Day. And there was some arguments about when D-Day should be scheduled and where the invasion of Europe should take place, whether through... uh, the soft underbelly of Europe, as Churchill referred to it, Italy and France, or directly across the channel. And also, FDR had this vision after the war uh, of a sort of United Nations, and he wanted to bring that up between the three Allied leaders. He first proposed that they meet in Fairbanks, Alaska. And Stalin just didn't want to do that. He then suggests a ship at sea uh, in the Atlantic. Uh, hopefully off North Africa. Stalin again rejects this. Finally, Churchill comes up with this quixotic idea of let's meet in three tents in the desert in the Middle East. And Stalin doesn't even deign to answer that. It's too absurd. So FDR in desperation sends Cordell Hull, the Secretary of State, to Moscow to see if he can get Stalin to agree to a meeting and where. Out of this, Stalin comes up with Tehran, and FDR and Churchill accept it. Where it's so ironic, it was the worst possible place for a meeting for several reasons. Mm-hmm. First, since the beginning of the war, the Nazis had been running a spy operation in the city of Tehran. It's a city of one million people, and they had assets in place. They had safe houses. Uh, they had a communication system with Berlin. And also, for the past three months before the conference itself, they had had aerial insertion missions. They had a, a base in the Crimea from conquered territory that the Germans had in Crimea, where they were sending paratroopers into Iran to sabotage Allied lend-lease war materials shipments that were going by train uh, to Moscow. 
So they have this network to send it in commandos into the country. And the man in charge of these aerial insertions was a guy called Otto Scorsenzi. He was a, a ruthless and yet inventive SS commando. He had the SS's special action school and at Orienburg, right outside Sachsenhausen concentration camp. And he was the one that Hitler had picked for this operation to kill the big three. Mm -hmm. And so everything seemed to, to fall into place uh, for the Nazis. Suddenly this impossible mission began to seem perhaps possible, uh, and they felt as if the operational gods had smiled on them. I'm speaking with Howard Bloom, author of Night of the Assassins. You can find more information about his work on howardbloom.com. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. If you're interested in other kinds of history, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal. Historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. I can imagine that um, even if the three wanted to keep their presence, uh, their movements into Tehran secret, I imagine just the size of their entourages or or the you know what they brought would tip people off that something big was happening or going to happen. Well, they actually did a, a fairly good job of keeping it a secret. FDR, for example, snuck out of the United States. He was supposed to be on the presidential yacht for a week, sailing, uh, getting a rest when he actually had taken the SS uh, Iowa, a, a battleship, uh, to North Africa. But the Germans found out about the meeting through a spy, and and, it, and this spy is actually very interesting. He, he, he was a walk-in. A walk-in is someone who comes to you unannounced, bearing gifts. And because of this, a walk-in is the most reviled man in the espionage community. You don't know why he's doing this. Is he doing this for ego? Is it out of patriotism? Is it out of money? Or is he really, and this is what makes the people he gives he comes to the most suspicious, the most wary, is he really a double agent? Is he spreading disinformation? And what happened was a man comes into the German embassy in Ankara, Turkey. He says he's the valet for the British ambassador in Ankara and says each night when the British ambassador goes to bed, he leaves his keys out on the nightstand, and that allows the valet to have access to his safe where he keeps the decoded cables and diplomatic traffic. Mm -hmm. And he's willing to give this diplomatic traffic uh, through the Germans in exchange for 20,000 pounds, 20,000 British pounds, which is a fortune worth about a million dollars today. And the Germans hear this, and they're not quite sure what to do. But then the head of Section 6, the German SS cloak and dagger operation, says, okay, we'll pay him the money, but he has the SS forgers forged 20,000 pounds. And, and, and so they get the documents, and as soon as they look at the documents, Schellenberg later writes uh, that, it, that they were absolutely breathtaking. The spy is so good, so successful, it keeps on making deliveries uh, that the Germans give him the code name Cicero after the German order because these five documents spoke so eloquently. And these diplomatic cables reveal the time and place to the Germans of the Tehran conference. So they knew, and now they have this network in the city, and they could now send their teams in there, and they just needed to come up with a plan that would work. They eventually uh, get pretty close to actually achieving. Did they... Um... Did they start paying this guy real money instead of forged money? <laughs> they keep on paying him forged money after the war. <laughs> and this sounds incredible. He, he sues the German government to try to collect 
uh, the money because he takes it to the bank after the war and they won't accept it. And and he has this lawsuit that goes on for about a year and a half, which he ultimately loses. He's trying to get restitution for his fine from the from the new German government. Wow, I've never heard of something so <laughs> outrageous and audacious. Yes. So, do you go much in the book? Do you go much into this, um, the training and and development of this um, SS secret action group? I think you said. Yes, uh, the, the men at Orienburg uh, uh, facility, this uh, SS commando center, is run by Otto Scorsenzi, and many of these men, the key people, had served with him on a another important mission which helped convince uh, the Nazis that they could actually succeed. This was the rest of Mussolini. Mussolini was imprisoned on the top of a 7,000-foot mountain in the Italian Alps after he was deposed by the Italian uh, Parliament, the Supreme Council. Uh, and Hitler tells Scorsese he wants Scorsese to rescue Mussolini. So Persenzi looks at this problem. There's only one cable car up to the top of the mountain. And this is the cable car is guarded by a battalion of, of Italian troops. There's no way they can storm that. You can't send paratroopers down out of the sky on the mountaintop because the winds are too strong at 7,000 feet. They'll be blown off the mountaintop. You can't land a plane. There's not enough room, and the, the top is, is very rocky. So he comes up with the idea of having gliders. And on September 12, 1943, 12 gliders swoop down out of the sky and try to land on this mountaintop. Seven of them crash, but five of them do land on the mountaintop. Scorsese and enough of his men scramble out. They storm the fortress where uh, Mussolini is being kept captive. And they rescue him three nights later. They bring Mussolini to Hitler's hideout in East Prussia. Uh, there's a, a ceremony. Scorsese is given the Iron Cross. He's now promoted to major. And the Allied press even is is talking about Scorsese, uh, his daring and his accomplishment. Uh, the New York Herald Tribune calls him the most dangerous man in Europe. And Hitler takes him aside and gives him his mission to now rescue or, or now assassinate the three Allied leaders at Operation Long Jump. So he's the one who's planning the tactics in Tehran. Hmm. What they eventually discover, and they send a reconnaissance force to Tehran, when the U.S., Mike Riley, does his reconnoitering of Tehran, both he and the Nazis are struck by the same discovery, which fills them both with a sort of, of fear. For Mike Riley... Tehran is a hot zone. It's filled with raging typhoids. Uh, there's an invisible enemy stalking the city, very much like what we're going through these days. Mm. It seems that the gutters uh, on the sides of the road are not just for not, do not ju just contain fresh water. That's where the Iranians dump all their refuge, mm. uh, and so typhoid is raging. However, Riley also finds out. There are water tunnels that connect with three embassies, American, British, and Russian embassies that were built by American engineers. And this brings in fresh water from the mountains to these embassy compounds. The Germans also find out about this. And their plan uh, is to use these water tunnels to sneak into the British embassy compound and surprise the big three. And the night they've chosen is a night they know uh, that the big three will be celebrating uh, together. There's a photograph in my book. It's the front piece of the book, and it's Churchill's 69th birthday party. And you can see FDR, Churchill, and Stalin sitting shoulder to shoulder. You can hear, you can see the birthday cake in front of them. It's just sliced up. It's on their plates. And you can almost hear their voices in, in, in your mind singing Happy Birthday, Winston. And at that very moment, as that photograph is taken, these six assassins who are on the loose in the city are planning to get to the water tunnels to sneak in to the British embassy compound, burst into the dining room, and change history. 
Sounds like a movie plot. It, it, it would be an interesting movie, and uh, there are some conversations now. We'll see if they come to fruition. Hmm. So I'm 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 hesitant to ask any questions because I don't want to reveal any any points in the story. You know that I want people to read and um, you know, and and learn for themselves through reading the book what happened. We we won't give away the ending. Who wins the war? <laughs> whether or not they survive. Right? Hmm. That's spoiler alert. So it seems as though, um, so, so one question I have is in the planning stages, the Germans, I guess they wanted to keep the group small so as not to tip off, um, allied security. But, you know, it seems who, who was doing most of the planning? Was it up to the level of Hitler or did he just let subordinates, uh, take care of that? He, Hitler let. Schellenberg and Scorsese do most of the planning. Mm -hmm. uh, and what happened was their insight was that they had two groups of commandos coming in in three separate planes. The first group had 38 commandos. However, their arrival was betrayed by a, a double agent who was working for the SS, who was really a, a Russian agent, a Russian spy. And so the Russians were, were waiting when this first 38 men came came down out of the sky, and most of them were killed before they even landed. The ones that survived were interrogated thoroughly. Mike Riley uh, writes about being told about this interrogation, and he says he was glad he didn't have to witness it. Uh, he could only imagine what the NKVD would do to these uh, German assassins. Then he said, well, this was wartime. But then he next fi finds out that there were six commandos still on the loose. And again, for the four days of the conference, there's this cat and mouse game. Now, Mike Riley now has to work with the Russians. They're searching a city of one million people trying to find these six commandos who are moving from safe house to safe house and trying to wait till the evening of Churchill's 69th birthday party when they can strike. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, are, are there any other, before I turn towards um, how you did your, your research, and you already mentioned a few things, um, are there any other little tidbits or issues you want to tantalize listeners with uh, before we move to that? Well, one couple of interesting things. One interesting story is FDR sneaks out of the United States, and he's on the USS Iowa, which is a larger, I think the largest battleship we have in the war. And he's going across the Atlantic. With him are the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, members of his, his cabinet, and Harry Hopkins, his advisor. And they're out at sea on the third day, and the captain, he wants to impress FDR, and he says, let's have a demonstration of our artillery prowess. And they put balloons in the air, and the and the Iowa big guns shoot them out of the sky. But one of the other boats in the flotilla, uh, one of the other ships, a, a Navy destroyer, is going to use this exercise to get his men doing uh, torpedo practice. And they sight on the Iowa as a, and insert a dummy torpedo into the torpedo tubes, and they launch it, this dummy, at the, at the Iowa, and only after they fire it do they realize it's a real live torpedo. And it comes within two yards of, of the battleship where FDR and the Joint Chiefs of Staff are all on board. And it just misses them. And the whole operation uh, the, uh, could have ended right then and there. The Americans could have accomplished by mistake through friendly fire what the Germans were trying to do before uh, the operation even got underway. Wow. Another inc incident uh, that I found sort of interesting, in the books that were written after the war by a French journalist, a Hungarian journalist, they referred to uh, a woman asset who was working with the Germans, uh, the German spy master in place in the city, Hans Mercer, had uh, an Iranian girlfriend, mistress, who helped them locate the water tunnels, uh, and they never reveal her name. 
there are the interrogations of Mercer uh, and this woman are in both the British and American archives, uh, declassified archives, and her name is Lily Sanjari. What comes out the most interesting thing, <laughs> Lily Sanjari, at the same time she was Mercer's mistress, was also having an affair with this American GI who played in a jazz band. He played a trumpet in a jazz band mm. in Tehran. And this trumpet-playing jazz man was actually an American intelligence officer. That was his cover. I mean, you couldn't make this up. And, and she is also telling him information, too, that later becomes important to the Allies. It was tidbits like that that doing the research and trying to put this story together uh, that made it so rich for me, and I hopefully will engage the reader, too. Wow. That, that's some stories of cloak and dagger there. Yes. All right, so uh, let's turn back towards the the documents that you found and used. What what archives um, did you um, did you tap for this? Well, the you know National Archives in Washington had, for example, this interrogation of Lily Sanjari. The German archives had a, a good deal about the commando operations, the aerial insertions from the base in Crimea. They gave the name of the sergeant who who trained the commandos in parachute jumping, the names of the planes, uh, how long the mission took, how problems some of them had with oxygen, uh, and how they were taught to parachute into uh, Tehran. So that all came together. And then the Churchill archives in Churchill College in Cambridge were interesting. Churchill writes about coming into Tehran. He has hoped to sneak into the city. He had hoped the meeting would remain secret. As soon as he gets off the plane uh, on the morning of uh, November 27th, he sees it's not much of a secret because there's a welcoming ceremony <laughs> for him. And, and he sort of grumbles about this. And then they put him into this open-top car, and they drive into the city, and he realizes the entire route into uh, the city is lined by Iranian cavalry in these sort of comic opera uh, uniforms, and they're, they're sitting high on their mounts, and he's saying it points the whole way like a beacon. Anyone wants to see where I'm going, any assassin will be easy to he can uh, get me in the crosshairs just by following the line of cavalry. He'll, he'll know which way I'm going. <laughs> and then it gets even worse. He's stuck in traffic outside the British embassy, and he's five minutes, seven minutes, it goes on for 12 minutes, and he's sitting in this open-top car, and he <laughs> writes, and I, or you can read this in the archives, if it had been planned uh, to put me in the worst, most possible harm, it couldn't have been better planned. They succeed in putting me in harm's way quite expertly, he says sarcastically. Mm. So those are the kind of uh, gems one could find in, in the archives. I mean, the humanness of, of Churchill's fear. And he had reason to be fearful, uh, because the Germans had shot down a plane uh, in Portugal that, that was flying off of the Portuguese airport when he was coming back from North Africa that they thought he was on. Uh, they they saw two men, their spy at the airport, uh, saw two men getting on the plane. One looked like Churchill with the Hamburg hat, the seven-inch cigar in the mouth, the dark suit, and behind them was a tall, thin bodyguard, Detective Walker Comp. Thompson, uh, and so they sent their fighters uh, from, from a base in France to shoot this down, this plane, over the Bay of Biscay, and, and they shoot it down, and it turns out that the, <laughs> the two men on board were actually the actor, Leslie Howard, who looked like uh, the bodyguard, and he, he was traveling with his accountant, who looked very much like Churchill, wow. and Churchill writes about this, too. And it says, there but for the inscrutable workings of fate, I escaped and these two innocent men were killed. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Howard Bloom, author of Night of the Assassins. You can find more information about his work on howardbloom.com. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links.
If you're interested in other kinds of history, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal. Historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. So speaking of which, do you have any information on how many assassination attempts were planned and perhaps attempted beforehand against each of these three individuals? Apart from what you well, just... There was that one aerial attempt. Mm-hmm. They also... The, the, the Germans sent a, a group, two renegade Russians, Russian turncoats, uh, to try to put a bomb under Stalin's car. And this bomb was designed to look like a piece of mud and it would affixed to the bottom of the car. It was quite ingenious. But they, they parachute into Russia. They know where... Stalin is in the field, and before they get to the camp, they're caught. The Germans had a plan for getting FDR, too, uh, and this plan never really got off the ground. They were going to send agents, marksmen, by submarine into uh, Long Island. They were then going to make their way to Washington, D.C., and hopefully pick off FDR through the White House grounds, but this never came to fruition. And wasn't until everything seemed to fall in place uh, that the city of Tehran was picked, that they had this network there, and they also had to get something done because with an unconditional surrender, they knew that they would have to appear before a war crimes tribunal. So now this was a desperation strategy, really. Uh, as far as the uh, Soviet or Russian records, are those... I know that um, after a lot of records were released, um, Russia kind of pulled back and, and reclassified stuff. Are the records that you used, are they still available, or did they get sort of uh, shut down in a sense? Well, those records are still available. Russia is very proud of what they did uh, at the Tehran conference, how they worked to prevent this. They overplay their role. They don't give Mike Riley enough credit. Interestingly enough, at the press conference when these records were presented uh, to the world, they brought out the head of their first chief directorate. And a reporter asked him, is this all there is? Do you have something else? And he said, in espionage, there always is one more file that you can never get. (laughs) And similarly, I I went to the, the CIA and I was having this discussion, and, and I said, you know, I, I want to tell the true story of Operation Long Jump, and I was talking with an official who I've had some relationship with, and he said, he starts to laugh, and he said, Howard, in espionage stories, uh, there is never always the, the entire true story. You can only get as close to what people are willing to reveal. There's always something hidden, and until the final file... Oh, is revealed, I'd like to think this is, is as complete a story as we're going to get on Operation Long Jump. What, what part of the research did you find most enjoyable? What I like the most is when I discovered how close the Nazis had come in succeeding. I had known that 38 men were captured. That was clear in the American records. Mike Riley writes about this but I hadn't realized that six were still on the loose, that they're on their way to making the water tunnels. And when I saw that, I sort of had a good third act for the book and also something that was quite shocking, how how close the Nazis came to succeeding and how close history came to being changed forever. Mm-hmm. That might answer my next question, but perhaps um, there's another answer, which is um, what did you find that was most surprising in your research? Again, avoiding any any reveals. Well, again, surprising to me was the role of synchronicity. I mean, here you have this really impossible mission. We've got to uh, kill the three Allied leaders, and we don't we don't know where they're going to meet or when they're going to meet. We don't we realize they're going to be well guarded uh, because. You know, they control the largest standing armies between them and the entire world, and we'll have to come up with a, a, a plan to sneak up on them. 
So bit by bit, everything falls into place. The Allies picked Tehran, which works perfectly for the Nazis. The Nazis uh, then get a spy who tells them when and where the meeting is going to take place. And then the water tunnels lead right into the British embassy compounds where Churchill, FDR, and Stalin will be together uh, to celebrate Churchill's 69th birthday. So that all these events can fall into place as, as if it's almost preordained that th this operation, this impossible mission, really has a, a chance of succeeding. That, to me, was the, the most interesting and shocking aspect of my research. Was, was Stalin's resistance to the other locations for security reasons or, or some other reason? Why Stalin resisted is, is a matter of debate. He said uh, that he didn't want to uh, leave the, get too far from Moscow. He had to be commanding the Russian army. Hmm. Other people have said, uh, his detractors, he's just afraid of flying. He didn't want to fly very far. Uh, and, you know, speaking of distances, FDR, who was paralyzed, had a, a weakened immune system, had to go across the world, 6,500 miles, uh, through war zones. One has to admire his, his courage and his commitment to the future of the world because he thinks it's going to be worked out at this conference. And uh, his bravery can't be overstated. So this question, again, I'm trying to ask questions without revealing anything or, or prompting you to reveal anything. Um, I was, the question is, what was the most difficult aspect to research? But perhaps um, I can ask, do you see, can you imagine any future information coming out that could round out some aspect of the story you're still wondering about? Well, the biggest mystery would be Otto Scorsenzi's, the commando who led the mission, trained the troops, his actual files. If I believe that they were destroyed after the war, he wanted to protect them from war crime tribunals. As it was, he did have to stand before a war crime tribunal for something he did in the Battle of the Bulge. He let uh, commando troops in American uniforms behind the lines, and he was put on war crimes for impersonating uh, American troops. He actually <laughs> didn't have got fought from that. He was he wasn't found guilty, and I believe that these files, if they haven't been destroyed, perhaps they're buried somewhere, and it'd be fascinating if they uh, appear someday. Hmm. Was there anything that, uh, any of this that had an emotional impact on you, either positively or negatively? Well, I, I was emotionally moved by Mike Riley's, F FDR's bodyguard, commitment to protecting FDR. At one point early on, uh, during one of the campaigns, he's guarding FDR, uh, and they take FDR by train to a campaign stop outside Philadelphia, and he's on the back of the rear car. They prop him up before the crowds come in. And Mike goes into the crowd to keep an eye on the people. And he's standing there far back in the crowd, and he sees a knife thrown at FDR. And FDR can't duck. He can't move out of the way. And the knife hits FDR in the chest. It turns out it's a rubber knife, uh, and it just bounces off. But this vision is a nightmare that stays with Mike Riley uh, for the rest of his time as FDR's bodyguard and all through the Tehran Conference and this vision of his commitment to saving the boss, as he calls uh, FDR, out of term of affection and respect, of saving his life is deeply ingrained and uh, something he lives with and, and, and keeps him up at night, literally. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just a quick, uh, again, you don't have to go into detail here, but the um, was there much um, military protection in Tehran at the time? I guess it would have been provided by British and Soviet troops, um, and I guess there wouldn't be... You, you did mention an American band in that area. Yes, American this is 
Americans had troops outside the city, but the airport where FDR landed, where Churchill landed, was controlled by Russians. You land and they saw a red star. And Mike Riley saw all these uh, Russians patrolling the area with submachine guns, and he writes, well, the Russians are our allies, but an ally is not the same as a friend. And he was very wary uh, of the Russians. When FDR chose to stay in the Russian embassy for security reasons, he would say there were men dusting all the furniture, and they'd bend over, and you could see uh, the, the revolvers strapped to their hips. They were really NKVD agents. And, and so there was a great deal of suspicion uh, between the Americans and the Russians, and yet Riley has to work with the Russians uh, during the four days of the conference to track down these six assassins who are on the loose in the city. Were you also able to, did you access the um, information for the heads of the British and Soviet security, like the same status as Mike Riley, or was it more just general information? Uh, well, the British archives talk ab uh, about their intelligence network, and they had been keeping track uh, of the German intelligence assets in the city. They are the ones who, at one point, arrest, before the conference, the, the heads of the German organization in, in the city, and that sends, and that actually works for the assassins' favor, because they have this safe house under surveillance, and the Germans realize that their head of the, the network in the city has been arrested, so they go to another safe house, and that's the one that the British can't find. So it sort of works against them. Again, everything seems to be working in the assassin's favor. Mm -hmm. So, um, apart from uh, filling filling in gaps in the historical record, what, what do you hope the book will do? I hope, on several levels, the book on one level is a a previously unknown bit of history. Mm -hmm. It's a, a a bit of history on another level that should be resonating to us in the times in which we're living in because we've seen how important leadership or the lack of leadership is in the time of crisis. We can see how life can change in an instant just like that uh, in, in these times. And we can imagine, I think, with uh, a greater and more chilling sense of immediacy what was at stake on that night of the assassins in Tehran than ever before. And on a, a final level, I'd like to think it's a, a, a pretty good read for someone who wants to sit on a porch in the summer, uh, read an exciting, suspenseful story that's also true, uh, a real-life thriller. I, I think you can find it enjoyable just, just as that kind of engaging and entertaining book. Did you have any get difficulties getting the book finished or published? Well, I've been, you know, a writer for a while now. I started out the New York Times, nominated for two Pulitzer's there. Uh, this is my 14th book uh, and my 56th for HarperCollins. Uh, so I have a pretty good relationship with the editors and, and publishers there. Uh, so that wasn't the hard part. And writing it was fun. It was this was a, a fun story to tell. I've gotten involved with my characters, uh, with Mike Riley, with Schellenberg, with Stortensi, and the idea of writing a fast-paced, suspenseful drama was a, a sort of a challenge that I enjoyed, and I look forward to every day returning to my desk. Mm -hmm. so, so as an established writer... Do you do you just come up with an idea and pitch it to publishers, or do you develop it? You know, write maybe ten or twenty pages, or or what's your approach in figuring out what to do? If you know, um, to create a full blown um, work. Well, what I, I do is I read a lot, and then I find an idea. I say, yeah, this would be really fun to investigate. This is something a story I'd like to tell, and. I have to find the facts, and because my books are, they read like they are narratives. Mm -hmm. Narratives, I have characters that guide us through it. I have to then make sure 
that there are memoirs, letters, events that will allow me to, to say with accuracy what my characters are thinking and feeling. Mm-hmm. And once I find that, I then think about how I want to tell the story, how I want to structure it, and I'll put together you know, 10 pages or, or, or so of how I see this book working. I'll take it to my agent and my editor at HarperCollins, and they'll say, yep, this sounds pretty good. Uh, let's go ahead. And, uh, you know, two or three years later, I'll have a book. Hmm. Have you had any projects? How long do you devote to doing this research, you know, pre-writing research before you just say, you know what, this isn't, this isn't going to work out as a, as a book. Well, I, I've had many projects uh, that I'll spend a month or two looking into it and, and realize it's not a book, but after a, a two months, I, I'm either hooked or not hooked. I can see how this will develop and I can see how after three years of research, I'll be able to tell a, a pretty engaging story. I'll be able to make the characters come alive on the page because I'll have actual access to to what really happened and how they're really thinking and feeling. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, what uh, are are there any projects you could mention that came close to becoming a book but just didn't quite make it? Uh, usually, if I put the two months of research into it, I'm, I'm then committed. Uh, I, I, for my next book, what I, I was looking at a contemporary project, mm-hmm. and it, and I spent oh maybe a month looking around, took a trip out to Kansas on something, and it just didn't feel right. I couldn't get enough of the documents. There weren't memoirs or letters, and the court case uh, didn't have enough detail to make it rich enough mm-hmm. for me to tell an actual true story. Mm-hmm. So speaking, so on that thread, do you have any future writing projects in mind, or right now you're just kind of fishing around? I have a, a, an idea that I'm going to write, uh, a book I'm going to write. It starts in 1978. A boat is floating on the Chesapeake Bay. There's no one on board. There's blood on the deck. There's top-secret government documents scattered around the cabin, and there's a transmitter on the boat that's classified as for communication with satellites. And from that real event, I think I tell a pretty good, or I look forward to telling a pretty good and engaging spy story. Well, yeah, that that's uh, that little hook you just gave was, yeah, that that got, that, that got me. Um, okay. Well, I hope it'll get you in a couple of years when the book is done. <laughs> <laughs> have you written on military history um, before? Do you have previous articles or books? Well, I have done a couple of books about World War II. Mm-hmm. I did a, a, a book called The Last Good Night, which was about a, a an American debutante who becomes a, a spy during World War II. I did a book called Brigade, which is a group of Jewish soldiers from Palestine who go fight with the British Army in the last sort of months of the war and what happens to them after the war. I, I did another book about World War One called Dark Invasion, which is really about the first German attack on the homeland. Uh, it's, it's a story about an anthrax attack on America in 1915. Uh, it's a story about how a, a bomb was placed in the U.S. Capitol building uh, by German uh, spies that goes off and, and an attack on uh, the richest man, assassination attempt on the richest man in, in the country, J.P. Morgan, who was severely wounded, and how the U.S. government turns to a New York City cop, Tom Tooney, uh, to get a group of policemen to form the first sort of homeland security corps to track down these German spies. Hmm. Interesting. Um, those must have been really interesting to research. Yes. Uh, it's, it's fun. What's so good about being a writer uh, is you get paid to learn something, and that every couple of years I can learn something new. 
that's why I, I sort of pick eclectic topics so I can keep on learning different things. Does Night of the Assassins have, a, do you have a bibliography in the back? Yes, I do. I have a bibliography. I have a note on sources. I, I talk about uh, where I got all the information. I just actually have a, an essay that's in Time magazine on how I researched the book. So I took document very precisely the steps I took. Okay. Uh, where can people find you on the, on the web? Do you have a social media, web page? I do. I have uh, author Howard Bloom on Facebook, at Howard Bloom on Twitter. I have uh, HowardBloom.com, where I have a blog. I'm all over the place. I'm very 21st century for an old man. <laughs> um, and I'll just spell that for listeners. Um, Howard, H-O-W-A-R-D, and Bloom is B-L-U-M. Right. So that's all the questions I have. Do you have any uh, final thoughts or words? I've just enjoyed speaking with you, and I, I hope uh, readers who are looking for a, a good book this summer that will teach them some history and at the same time engage them in a true-life thriller uh, might might enjoy spending time uh, with Night of the Assassins. Good, good. Well, thank you for speaking with me. My pleasure. Take care. Enjoy the weekend. You too. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please subscribe to it and rate it and review it if possible. I have many other options as well to get great military history information. You can find links to interesting military history videos on my Facebook page, War Scholar. You can find links to interesting military history news articles, military history archaeology information, and academic information on my Twitter page, War Scholar. You can find photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez War Scholar. You can find my military history videos on my YouTube page, WarScholar1945. You can also sign up for my newsletter at WarScholar.org or MilitaryHistoryPodcast.com. In the newsletter, I post additional video and news links, as well as regular updates on new military history books being published. Thank you for listening.